Hello and welcome to Going Viral. I am David Lim. It is Thursday, the 22nd of October. Are you getting quite confused about the various COVID-19 vaccine and treatment trials? I am. Dr. Sanjaya Senanaika elaborates on the two vaccine trials and the Eli Lilly treatment trial that have been paused. The Solidarity WHO Remdesivir trial, Regeneron, and convalescent plasma and helps to clear up the confusion. Before we start, I'd like to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can listen to these podcasts on the HealthEd website, or you can download the HealthEd app and access many other learning resources as well. Dr. Senenaika, can you tell us about yourself? Yes, I'm an infectious diseases physician at uh, the Canberra Health Service and Associate Professor of Medicine at the ANU Medical School. About a week ago, a 25-year-old in the USA caught COVID-19 twice, confirmed by genomic sequencing. What is even more worrisome this time is that this patient was severely ill with hypoxic uh, symptoms. We had previously thought that a second infection is either asymptomatic or very mild. What issues does this case raise with regard to longer-term immunity, to vaccine efficacy, and to the vulnerable patient who may have survived the, a first infection? Yes, yeah, so there have now been five documented cases of reinfection with COVID. This was the first in the United States. And ironically, it was announced about uh, 24 hours after President Trump said, I'm immune. Mm. So there have been four other cases. And with the four other cases, they've generally been milder the second time round. But as you correctly said, this was a healthy young man whose second illness was more severe. And that is worrying. Because if we think of another infection, or mosquito-borne, but still a viral infection called dengue, which uh, I'm sure your audience is familiar with, mm. that can be associated with a more severe second infection because of the nature of the immune response, something called antibody-dependent enhancement. So that was always something we wondered about with this virus. Now, then you can say, well, there have been five cases of reinfection. Only one of them has been more severe. The others have been milder. Is that reassuring? It's hard to know because we've had over 40 million confirmed cases of COVID. So five cases of reinfection as a proportion is, is minuscule. Mm. So we, we really don't know. And particularly in countries which haven't had a strong uh, testing reg uh, regimen, you, you wonder actually whether some of the people being hospitalized with their, in, in inverted commas, first episode of COVID are in fact having their second. Mm -hmm. So it, it, that, is, that is the concern. But of course, uh, 
five cases, it is hard to draw any conclusions. If we've got 100 cases, 500 cases, 1,000 cases of reinfection, that might be far more helpful. Uh, but certainly this, this was a worrying case, although hope we can't necessarily generalize what a second episode of COVID will be like just because of this. And in terms of immunization, uh, again, the same sort of principle. If, uh, and again, this has happened with the a dengue vaccine as well that had to be recalled a few years ago because uh, the vaccine was associated with an immune response that made a subsequent episode of uh, dengue worse. Mm. So, yeah, so there are things we have to think about. Thus far, two vaccine trials and one treatment trial have been paused. So let's start with the vaccines. The Oxford AstraZeneca Vector Vaccine Trial and the Johnson & Johnson Vaccine Trials have been paused. And I've been told this is not unexpected in any vaccine trial. First of all, can I confirm that both the Oxford AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson vaccines are both recombinant adenovirus vector vaccines? Uh, yes, that is correct. So right now there are 10 vaccines in phase three trials at the moment. And my understanding is four of them, the AstraZeneca one, can, the CanSino one, uh, the Gamaleya one from, the, from Russia, and the Janssen one, they're all adenovirus. Four out of the 10 that are in phase three trials are adenovirus ones. Of the four vector vaccines, one is in China and one is in Russia. And I'm not sure how transparent those results may be. They might be, I'm not just not sure. But that means that the two that we have, both the Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca ones, seem to be paused for some reason. Does that actually bring to bear some concern about this class of vaccines? Uh, look, not necessarily, David. The thing with vaccine trials is all the time in vaccine, in fact, medication trials, there will be pauses in the late stage trials because a participant gets an illness. Hmm. The only issue is this is now the most important issue in the world. No one's ever been looking at vaccine trials in our history uh, compared to the way they are now. So this is it. Anything that happens in one of these trials makes headline news around the world. So that's the first thing to consider. And, but it is quite common in vaccine and medication trials for the trial to be halted if, some, if a participant develops an illness in order to see if it's just a, a chance illness or whether it in fact could be related to the intervention being trialled. With regard to the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, has that particular adverse reaction been unmasked? And was that patient uh, given a placebo or active drug? Look, I don't know the answer to that one yet. I, don't, uh, I haven't seen the, that information as yet. It's yeah. suspected transverse myelitis. And the trials have been restarted in all the other participating countries except the US, and I, uh, as of last week, and I still don't think that the US has restarted their trials because they're looking into it further to see if there's anything that uh, requires more investigation. Uh, so, Jai, you did mention that these sorts of things, this sorts of importance and significance of the COVID-19 vaccines. Now, the very fact that one country, the American FDA, has not yet 
press the start button again and the other countries have and you haven't seen any reasons behind it does this transparency issue cause any problems for you oh yes i i'd, I'd like to know exactly what is happening i think it it is really important for uh, the vaccine companies who are in phase three studies to be very transparent and they have actually a lot of those companies have made agreements to be uh, transparent but yeah the more information the better mm. so I, I, I can just presume that the US FDA are just making sure that there aren't any other cases out of the tens of thousands or thousands of patients that may have been missed before mm. they proceed. So Charlie, let's start looking at treatment uh, I'm specifically referring to the antibody treatment. Uh, am I right to understand that the Eli Lilly trial is an antibody trial and that Regeneron, made famous by the American president, is also an antibody treatment? Yes, they're both uh, antibody, uh, monoclonal antibody treatments. That's correct, yes. I understand that the Eli Lilly's neutralizing antibodies approach using two different antibodies initially reported to reduce hospitalizations by 85.5%. Why has this trial been paused? Well, again, we don't know. So my understanding of this trial, and the two trials are different. So Regeneron, the trial or the data that was released from the ongoing trial, is being performed on non-hospitalized patients with COVID. And the Eli Lilly trial is being performed on about 300 odd people with COVID. And with the Eli Lilly trial, my understanding is you either get placebo or antibody, but you also get standard of care. So I think everyone was getting remdesivir as okay. well. Uh, but yes, the trial was paused and again, it's, uh, it's slightly mysterious. My understanding is that the patients who received the antibody showed a different and in inverted commas clinical status than the group who received the saline placebo. Uh, the other thing is the dose of antibodies that they are getting is seven grams, which is apparently about 10 times higher than the dose that the company's pharmaceutical company is planning to give to those people not hospitalized with COVID. So not sure what the reaction is, it, but whatever it is, it might be dose related. And maybe a lower dose may not bring on that reaction. But you're right, it, it is very important to know what's happening and we're all wondering. Now, being just a common garden GP, I can't tell the difference between a pause in a vaccine trial and a pause in a treatment trial. Because in the vaccine trial, you tell me it happens all the time. What about pauses in treatment trials? Is this more significant? Well, like you, I'm, I'm more uh, familiar with the vaccine trials than the treatment trials. But no, it, it, look, it is the, the, the same issue. So uh, there could be a, 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 someone might develop a rash, someone mm. might develop a fever, their liver function test might become abnormal. But again, if, you're, if you have a trial with a large number of people, that can be due to a variety of random causes not related to the intervention. Mm -hmm. But either way, you need to stop the trial and just uh, ensure that it is not a drug reaction and uh, ensure that it is safe to proceed. Now, with regards to the Regeneron COVID-19 antibody cocktail, uh, I understand it has some effect on viral load and on the patient's symptoms. Has there been any data on mortality benefit? 
No, look, this trial, as I mentioned before, is being performed in non-hospitalised right. patients. So these are people who are particularly unwell with COVID. The other thing is these, this is an ongoing trial and the company released some data around uh, close to the time that uh, President Trump was diagnosed with his infection. It was a descriptive analysis of the first 275 patients enrolled in the trial. And what they found is that Regeneron, the antibody, was more likely to be effective in people or patients who were seronegative for COVID at diagnosis than seropositive. So if you have a non-hospitalized illness, uh, you've been sick for a few days, you don't have antibodies to COVID yet, and you receive the Regeneron antibody, mm -hmm. then you're more likely to get a reduction in viral load get a more rapid alleviation of symptoms. So uh, those sorts of things, and apparently no major side effects. But again, I have to uh, highlight that this is an ongoing trial, and we've just had a bit of data released at this point. So I think there's a long way to go before we can say that this definitely works. I mean, we would hope that it works. Uh, monoclonal antibody therapy, convalescent plasma, all those things are potentially promising therapies, but we need to make sure that uh, we have further trial data and it's peer-reviewed, etc. You just segued to the next point. I had read in the BMJ that the FDA in America has authorised the use of convalescent plasma for use in hospital patients on the back of two small underpowered trials, saying that it may be effective. Can you tell us a little bit more about the benefits and risks of using convalescent plasma? Yeah, my understanding is with, with these trials, they haven't found uh, any safety issues with it. But as you say, there's not enough data out there to definitively say it works. When I last looked, there, there were about 90 trials, I believe, 90 randomized control trials uh, being considered and uh, being planned. So I think until we get more data from those randomized controlled trials, it's very hard to make a conclusion about convalescent plasma. But again, uh, in terms of biological plausibility, it makes sense that it, it could work. And if uh, the limited data we have so far showing that it, it, it is safe, it may be if people are desperate as they might be in the United States to issue, it, issue use of it under emergency use authorization, which is I think, uh, uh, what the FDA uses over there to fast track a drug. Now let's look at the Remdesivir WHO trial. Now I understand it was a large trial of about 11,000 people in 112 countries and that it reported no mortality benefit but modestly reduced the time to recovery in hospitalized patients. Can you tell us more about this trial and the possible implications of the findings? Yeah, so the solidarity trial has been really wonderful because you've got healthcare workers and researchers from all around the world being able to take ownership of uh, COVID treatment in uh, a well-defined, ethically uh, defined trial. So I think it's been fantastic. And they looked at remdesivir and as you correctly say, it was uh, 11,000 patients in the trial and around just under 3,000 who received who were in the remdesivir arm of the trial compared to beta interferon and, and other medications. And they did not find an obvious 
or statistically significant reduction in mortality. And that actually is in keeping with uh, a US trial of about a thousand patients as well, where there was a trend towards a reduction in mortality, but it certainly wasn't statistically significant. So, and I think that is pretty convincing evidence that remdesivir doesn't reduce mortality. The US trial, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, did show uh, a more rapid alleviation of symptoms in those who received remdesivir, so uh, 10 days versus 15 days, which was statistically significant. Uh, but uh, it was only in a subgroup analysis, if I remember correctly, really patients who were on low flow nasal oxygen at the time they started to get remdesivir. Mm. So remdesivir with the solidarity trial, it's, it's been a bit disappointing. Um, yeah, so really we've only got, we've got dexamethasone that the mm. recovery trial in the UK showed works well in people who are really sick and hospitalized with COVID. But unfortunately, remdesivir does not seem to reduce mortality. Mm. I believe though the manufacturers of remdesivir are contesting the findings of this trial. They're talking about heterogeneity of, of the pop patient population, etc. There may or may not be something to it, uh, but really looking at the data that the World Health Organization have revealed, remdesivir does not seem to reduce mortality. That seems a funny kind of an argument because you'd expect that if we give it in real life, the population we give it to would be heterogeneous anyway. Well, exactly, exactly, exactly. So I must admit, I haven't looked in detail at what the pharmaceutical company has said. There may be merit to some of their arguments, but certainly this trial seems to have been carried out in a very... Uh, appropriate, well-powered way. Mm -hmm. Now, having touted hydroxychloroquine, President Trump was not given this drug in hospital. Is the hydroxychloroquine COVID-19 story dead in the water? Yep, uh, dead in the water, put to bed, uh, any other uh, analogies that you can think of. <laughs> yeah, no, no, more, no more hydroxychloroquine for uh, COVID. Maybe for rheumatoid arthritis, Mm -hmm. and, uh, maybe lupus, but uh, not for COVID. I mean, the, the recovery trial in the, the UK also showed that. Now, some time ago, Sanjay, you mentioned a BCG trial being done in Australia for healthcare workers. How's that going? Look, I haven't seen the interim results uh, from that trial. The basis of that trial was that in some people who received BCG or children in particular, they seemed, if followed longitudinally, to have a reduction in certain other infections, suggesting that the BCG stimulated a part of the immune system that wasn't just specific for tuberculosis. And we know certainly in terms of other mycobacteria it might have effect, an effect against leprosy as well. Mm -hmm. So they are looking into that, uh, but I haven't seen the interim results at the moment. I'm getting very confused by all these trials, all these findings between vaccines and treatments and antibodies and drugs. Could you somehow briefly summarise for us GPs how we can actually think about what's happening now and what's actually uh, effective, what is not, and also uh, your gut feelings about various vaccines coming up. Which one do you think will get the thumbs up or will be trumped? Right now, and hopefully I haven't forgotten something, in terms of treatment, the only medication that seems to make a difference is dexamethasone. In, but again, not so relevant for general practice because this is for patients who are 
extremely unwell or ventilated on supplemental oxygen in hospital with COVID. So dexamethasone definitely makes a difference. Many, many things are being trialed. Uh, the solidarity trial that we just talked about, the World Health Organization one, they're going to test other ones, uh, other medications. There's a calibrutinib, which is uh, a cancer drug that inhibits uh, an enzymatic pathway in our own immune system. So it might modify the immune response and hopefully people with severe COVID might have a, a milder illness. Uh, people are also doing trials on nebulized heparin. So uh, all your listeners, of course, would know heparin as uh, a way to prevent deep venous thrombosis or to treat uh, pulmonary embolism or DVT. But it potentially has some antiviral and anti-inflammatory effects too. And so that's been looked at. But again, inhaled heparin, not so relevant uh, for the community as well. So really, dexamethasone definitely works in the hospitalized patients, but we can't say much more beyond that. If you ask me in a month or two, we might have more results from some of these other medications that have been studied. In terms of vaccines, we've got 10 vaccines in phase three at the moment. As we discussed, four of them are adenovirus uh, vector-based vaccines. And hopefully we'll start to see some results possibly in December, but more realistically in the first few months of next year for some of these trials. Thank you. Now, do you mind if I just look into our own backyard just for the last few minutes? Um, can you compare and contrast the New South Wales and Victorian uh, response to COVID-19, seeing that we have similar active COVID-19 cases, but quite different strategies? Why is that? There are a couple of reasons. So the first one is they started off as two different outbreaks. So New South Wales had outbreaks, which really were a consequence of the Victorian outbreak. So that cluster of cases at the Crossroads Inn or, or pub, which was uh, due to a traveler from Victoria, that led to a number of small clusters that sort of pepper it, peppered all over mainly Sydney. However, they were the New South Wales government and health authorities were able to get these clusters under control. So very effective contact tracing. And they did so with a relatively limited amount of uh, restrictions. They recommended masks. They didn't make them mandatory. And they've come to a very good place at the moment. Yeah. The Victorian one started off very badly. Of course, the issues with hotel quarantine spilled into the community. And as you'll recall, there was a day with about 725 cases. And so Victoria was in a completely different uh, spot to the New South Wales outbreak. And you have to remember with 725 cases, on average, each case has about 10 contacts. So that means you really have to try and get 95% of about 7,000 contacts contacted and quarantined within 48 hours. And that, that is very hard. So mm. Victoria had to have a different response and therefore they created their, their roadmap. But Victoria is doing very well at the moment. And as you say, it's doing similarly to, to New South Wales. And hopefully we saw some restrictions lifted in Victoria and hopefully they'll continue to reassess and lift those restrictions fairly shortly. And, uh, then hopefully we can have a, a uniform response throughout the country 
to these outbreaks. Now, having said that, the Chief Health Officer of Victoria did also say there were some differences in terms of uh, the, the types of clusters that they were seeing in Victoria compared to New South Wales. So the Victorian clusters were occurring in households that had more people in them, so more populous households, which therefore meant that more people within the households were being infected, were going to their workplaces, et cetera, and infecting more people and generating more contacts. So it was different from that point of view. There was also talk about the public health infrastructure of uh, Victoria being and contact tracing capability being different to New South Wales. Uh, I haven't got inside knowledge on that, but we certainly heard people being saying that New South Wales had a a better public health system than Victoria for this sort of thing. But as I said, I don't, don't have any inside knowledge on that. But now I think we are getting to a stage where hopefully we'll have a uniform strategy in the country. Now, I personally think, and I could be wrong, of course, that the best thing is to, uh, if you've got small numbers of COVID, just live life relatively normally. There may be some restrictions, but if you have a cluster of cases, then you ring fire that particular region you intensify uh, testing, education in all the, in, in that particular region. There might even be a national mobile unit consisting of epidemiologists, federal police to help maintain that, that uh, ring fire boundary. And the rest of the city would continue on relatively normally, except maybe wearing masks, just in case people are traveling out of the ring, ring fence zone and infecting other people. So that's sort of how I picture things could be in the future. Interesting. So, Sanjaya, do you think that um, testing for uh, COVID fragments in sewerage uh, water uh, a very helpful way to identify the suburbs at risk, but cases not yet identified? Yes, I do think it is worthwhile. I don't think there are any federal government official recommendations about this, mm. but it is useful because now there are about 1,200 odd wastewater treatment plants in Australia. And my reading was that if you only tested about 50 odd of them, mm -hmm. you would capture over 50% of the population. So uh, relatively sm a small amount of work for a large gain. Now, the limitation, of course, is if you've had lots of COVID in your area, people are going to shed the virus in their stool for quite a while, and it's most likely going to be dead virus anyway. So you'll have positive sewage. So it's not going to be helpful in that setting. Where it is going to be useful is where you've been testing regularly and you've had negative result for that wastewater treatment plant, and suddenly it becomes positive. Then that should uh, increase the awareness of authorities in that particular area that there could be COVID cases there. Of course, there's also the possibility it's someone from a different region has, different part of the city has come in, visited that region and used a toilet and uh, that's how the COVID uh, virus got into the sewage there. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think it can be a useful tool in terms of surveillance. A personal question then, Sanjaya, will you be wearing masks? And if so, where will you wear it to? Okay, so MAS, the World Health Organization, has come out with a recommendation based on uh, good data that came out in the middle of this year that in places of high community transmission where people can't safely physically distance, masks are useful 
in reducing the transmission of COVID. So using those principles, I think it is fair to say that in many parts of Australia, which seem to have eliminated COVID, it would be reasonable not to wear masks in places with active cases. So Victoria sort of coming down to very few cases, but they're coming off a very bad outbreak. I think it's very reasonable, particularly in metropolitan Melbourne, for people in enclosed spaces, particularly public transport, shops, uh, restaurants, etc., to wear masks. The other situation would be when you have a well-controlled region or a region with elimination that suddenly gets COVID in an area, then people in that area and surrounding regions, so maybe the rest of the city, should wear masks. Because in, particularly in places like Sydney and Melbourne, as you well know, people might live in one part of the city, but they'll travel another hour or two hours to go to work and therefore could uh, merrily spread the virus around. Therefore, it's a good idea uh, for people to wear, wear masks in that setting. So, Joe, do you have any final messages for our listeners? Yeah, look, it's been, how many months has it been? It's been nine months, almost nine months since Australia had its first case of COVID. I think it was January 27th. And uh, compared to the rest of the world, we've done really well. Uh, we've obviously had two big outbreaks in neighbouring states which have uh, travelled differently and been managed differently. And internationally, of course, the Northern Hemisphere is really managing very badly. And uh, South America, places like India, having lots of cases as well. So in Australia, we have done relatively well. And I think it's, it is important to remember that. And I think vaccines, I'm one of those more optimistic people who think one of these vaccines will work. As we discussed, 10% of vaccines only ever work, but we only need one or two of these vaccines out of the 165 vaccine candidates that are being researched at the moment to work uh, for things to be okay. Now, it may be a vaccine that we have to get boosted every one or two years, but I'm hopeful there will be one or two good vaccines. But I'm still looking at the middle of next year before that happens. And the search for a useful medication to reduce the mortality of COVID and to be useful in the community setting as well uh, will go on. And I guess if we have another one of these interviews in a month or two, we might have some more information about that. Well, I look forward to that interview in one or two months' time. Just one parting word. Where do you think the second wave in Europe is going to end up? Yeah, well, I think they will get it under control. I know the World Health Organization just uh, came out recently and said, no, just avoid lockdowns as much as you can. But uh, with places like France having 20 odd thousand cases per day, huge numbers of cases in the UK, increasing levels of hospitalization, even though the death rates are much less, I think we are going to see lockdowns in a number of regions. So, and of course, France, uh, the president of France just recently announced in the last few days that I think it's nine cities, including Paris, will have nighttime curfews, just like uh, Melbourne has been ex or had been experiencing up till recently. So, yeah, I think we'll see lockdowns in certain places. I think we're going to see a lot of unhappiness with the popu local populace experiencing the lockdowns. For example, in Madrid, the federal or the national government introduced a number of harsh but possibly necessary restrictions. This was challenged in court by the 
local government of Madrid who actually won. And then I understand that the federal government responded by introducing a state of emergency. And so the local government couldn't fight that. Those sorts of, uh, I think that's where Europe's headed at the moment. Mm, wow. I, I think I'll have to speak to you about the fragmentation of countries versus their own state and local governments another time. It's just the weirdest time in the world at the moment. Oh, look, absolutely. And I think uh, it, it's really, it has really brought out the uh, difference between, even in Australia, mm. between a uh, federal government and a state government and who's got what power. Uh, I think that's been a, a really sort of fascinating part of this, this outbreak. And not just here, of course, the United States and, and other places. Mm. Might be a good topic for another conversation one day, Sandraya. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much for giving us your precious time. It's been a very interesting conversation with you. Oh, always a pleasure, David. Thank you. Keep well. You too. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.